This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Hi, this is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, host of The Voice of Leadership and Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. And guess what? Today I am a guest on my own show. And I thought it would be great to share with you my personal reflections of working for 50 years now in the tax-paying workforce of the United States. So I'm going to go way back and I'll start with my first job. My very first job, I was a cashier in a dry cleaners in downtown Baltimore. And I had a lot of responsibility. I had to come in early in the morning, open up the dry cleaning shop. At the end of the day, I had to close it. Obviously, I had to be on time because all the other workers relied on me to open the door so that they could get in to get into the back of the store to do the work that they did. I also had to count the money and the receipts at the end of the day and save those for the owner so that he could come in and pick them up at the appropriate time. Now what things were like back at that time was that the cash register was one of these old-fashioned cash registers and it was not automatic at all and it was clunky just like those ancient old like typewriters from back in the 1800s and I remember having to key everything into that cash register which didn't add things by the way so I also had a manual adding machine right next door to the cash register so that if someone had multiple purchases and we had to add it up I could ring it up on the adding machine total it into the cash register and pay them so back in those days you had to know how to count money because you had to make change and so on and so forth so that's what it was like at that time now this was a very responsible job and I learned a lot about being responsible about being on time recognizing that my actions affected a lot of other people along the way I learned about customer service all kinds of interesting and different customers downtown in a big city all the way from the business people to the kind of marginal types all came to the cleaners at one time or another so it was actually kind of a fun job in that respect I also would say that from this cleaners job I had an opportunity to experiment with why there are processes in place in businesses this is really important you, you know, when you go to the cleaners, your clothes would be tagged with a number and your whole order would have that number so that later when the person came to pick up their clothes, they could just, you know, put the whole order together and give the person the right items. Well, one day it was very busy. A man came in and he had the most unusual bizarre and psychedelic pants I've ever seen. I said, nobody in the world is going to have these pants but him. So I decided not to tag that particular pair of pants. Later on, I regretted it because there was another gentleman, unbeknownst to me, who had brought the same psychedelic pants into the cleaners. So both pairs of pants were in there that day. 
And so when he came, the first guy came to pick up his pants, I had to guess which one probably belonged to him, and I guessed wrong. <laughs> so he comes in later, what have you done in my clothes? You've messed up my clothes. My pants weren't like this before. They don't fit now. They're all, look at this. <laughs> and so I had to calm him down and said, I'm sure we can work this out. In the meantime, the other guy had picked up the other pair of pants. However, we got it all sorted out. The right people had the right pants. And I learned a valuable lesson that day. Don't assume anything. How things look is not necessarily how they really are. And it was very important after that. I remembered to tag every article of clothing with the right number. The most interesting job I had in my early life was as a park technician. And what was interesting about this role is that I was a park technician at the White House. So my job was to greet guests who were coming to tour the White House. And I would meet them down on the ellipse, and then we would walk up to the White House together, and then I would drop them off so they could go on their tours. What was fascinating about this, as you can imagine, lots of international people come to the White House. So this was my first really big global exposure to people from all over the world. And one of the things I learned is that people from all over the world are very interested in U.S. politics and U.S. news. In fact, I would say that the average guest knew more about it than I did. So I really had to learn to keep up because they asked me all kinds of questions. They wanted to know about how the United States worked, what was going on in our country, what was happening, who was going to do what next. And I was like, wow, these people are from other country and they care about this and they're studying it. However, they really did. What I really enjoyed about the job is that my specific role was to meet those guests who were French speaking. And since that's my favorite foreign language, I had the opportunity to greet them in French, give them all of their instructions in French, and to answer questions in French as well. So again, another global kind of opportunity. And I made friends with certain groups. One of my favorite, they were from Marseille out of France, and that was just a wonderful, wonderful fun friendly and engaging group that I met along the way. The other thing that was kind of interesting about this job is that I wore a park ranger uniform. So there was the pants, the shirt, the hat, everything you see a park ranger wearing, that's what we wore as park technicians. So it was unique in that respect. And I was a child who grew up only wearing dresses, only wearing skirts. This was the first time I'd ever worn pants. It was really to wear pants in this role and in this particular job. It was also my first outdoor job where I was walking back and forth all day from the White House and the pickup points. It was hot and it was humid there in Washington, D.C., yet it was a unique role and I wouldn't trade it for anything because of the exposures and what I learned from that position. Now, I would say both of these early career jobs gave me incredible information about taxes. So in the first job in the cleaners, I was shocked when I got my check back because I had calculated how much money I should make. However, I forgot that Uncle Sam had to take his part too. So I said, where's the rest of my money? Oh, taxes. That's what I had to pay. So I learned that in the first job. And I was like, that was quite a bite. 
And then in the second job, what I learned is that the more I worked, in many respects, the less I made. If I tried to do overtime, then I would go into the next tax bracket, which meant that more money was taken out of my check. And although I might have worked 10, 15 hours over, the amount I got back for that work was less than what you might get for five hours over. And I was really shocked by that. So I've learned the reality of taxes and how it impacts your paycheck in the United States. One of the benefits of early jobs is they teach you a lot about the world and how the world works. So one of my college jobs, I was a supervisor of a group of people in orientation, the orientation program. So I had student orientation advisors. And then in another case, I had those who were working with parent orientation. And what I discovered is that due to the work study program, and some people were recipients of work study funds, even though I was the supervisor, they made more money than I did. And I was shocked by that because I didn't know that that was possible. And I thought, well, if I'm the supervisor, how come I'm not making more money than they are? So there are often other dynamics at play in terms of what happens with salary. And it's the beginning of thinking about What's the reason that you really work? Yes, you need money and you want to earn money for different things. However, there has to be a more intrinsic value for work other than just the finances. And so keep that in mind. Later on, when I was in graduate school, I was looking for a way to fund the next year's education. And every year was different. I had a National Institute of Mental Health scholarship one year. I had a teaching fellowship one year. And this particular year, I was trying to piece together what I was going to do. And my faculty members weren't very helpful in thinking about the possibilities. In fact, my major advisor at the time, he said, well, you know, we really don't think graduate students ought to work because it interferes with their study capacity. And then I said, well, did you work when you were in graduate school? And he said, oh, yes, I worked. I was married. I had children. I said, well, don't you think that if you got through graduate school and you worked, that I can also do the same thing? And so I said, I can see now that I really need to find my own way here. So I did. I looked around on the campus and I found a great job, a fabulous job, which technically was part of being a member of the staff of the university. And with that role came some perks. One perk was I had a faculty sticker for my car, which meant that I could park right outside the graduate school residences and right across the street from the psychology building where I worked every day. I thought, oh, wonderful. I've got this faculty sticker. And the faculty privileges also allowed me to go to the faculty dining room. I was smart enough not to routinely go there because my professors, that's where they went to lunch every day. However, because of my role in the job that I had, I did have to go to the faculty lounge occasionally for staff meetings. And so they looked at me, my professors, and glared at me when I was in there. And I thought, well, you could have helped if you wanted to. But in the end, I ultimately found my own way, and sometimes in life, that's what you have to do. Later, after graduate school, I decided to go into the Army as an Army officer and psychologist. 
And for me, being in the Army was kind of a shocking experience because people in my family did not routinely go into military service. And in fact, I had a misconception about the people who were in the military. In my community, only those people who couldn't find anything else to do would go into the military. And so that's what I thought it was all about. Where was I wrong? There are so many diverse and interesting people in the military, brilliant, smart people in the military, which shocked me. I didn't expect to see that, and I wondered if I would really fit in. And in fact, I wasn't just going into the military because I wanted to be in the military. For me, it was a means to an end. I really cared about my psychologist's development and training. And I knew that the Army had been on the forefront of psychology in World War II and in other times. So I wanted to have the exposure to really difficult and diverse cases in psychology. And I had my eyes set on Walter Reed Hospital. And I had friends who had done residencies in other areas at Walter Reed. And I thought, okay, maybe I should pursue going to Walter Reed. So I wrote to them and they wrote back and said, oh yes, thank you for your interest. We'd be glad to have you. And you have to be in the army as an active duty person. I said, no, never mind. I'm not interested in being in the army. And of course, once you contact the military, they keep contacting you, trying to find something that would interest you and entice you into being in the military. So the chief psychologist, of the Army called and he said, you know, we are recruiting psychologists right now and we're offering the Health Profession Scholarship Program. Mind you, I'm at the end of my academic career, so I have like a year left in school and most people who accept the Health Profession Scholarship Program, they begin at the beginning so that the military funds their whole education. I didn't know about that, so I didn't do that. I said, well, no, I don't know if I really want to do this. He said, well, Congress is closing the window soon, and so why don't you apply? And then if you choose not to accept, you don't have to accept. I said, well, that's fair enough. So that's what I did. I applied, and I waited to see what would happen, and they accepted me. In the meantime, I talked to everyone I knew who had been in the military, who had experienced anything in the military, and I said, well, okay, I guess I'll go for it. Now, prior to that, the first recruiter that they sent me was this smoking, drinking, hardcore guy who had volunteered to go to Vietnam a few times. And this was back in the day when if you went to Vietnam once, you didn't really go back again. And so I was like, I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, can I see myself in the army? Well, he was a smart guy because he recognized that there was probably a disconnect. Here's this very conservative Christian girl who doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, and <laughs> she's not seeing a picture of herself. He had a young lieutenant working for him who was a devout Mormon. He was very religious. He was a family man. He had children. And he had that guy reach out to me and invite me up to Fort Detrick at the time, which was up in Massachusetts. And he was the most mild and meek person I had ever seen. And I thought, well, if he can be in the Army, certainly I can be in the Army. And so that approach actually worked. And that's an important lesson for business. Sometimes when you're recruiting and you're talking to people, they've got to see a picture that they can relate to. 
can I see myself in this workplace? And the lieutenant was a picture that I could relate to in terms of being able to be in the military. Now, in my military years, I learned a lot. I learned how to do hard and difficult things. And what I would say about that is when I talked to the recruiter the first time, I said, look, I've seen commercials on television about ROTC and all of this repelling that people do. I'm really not interested in repelling. I don't like repelling. I don't want to repel. <laughs> and he said, well, don't worry. You're not going to have to do repelling. You're going in as a psychologist. And I thought, okay, great. No repelling. So sometime later, as I'm standing before the 25-foot repelling tower and remembering this conversation, I said, now I understand what people say. Oh, yeah, recruiters tell you anything that they think you want to hear. I had to repel off the 25-foot tower, had to repel off the 50-foot tower, and then off the mountains later in the afternoon. Well, it was, for me, an extremely frightening experience. It was the one thing I didn't want to do. And I recall even going up the ladder that goes up that repelling wall, it's straight up and down. I didn't think that was going to be scary. When I got on that ladder, it scared me to death. There was no tilt. It was straight up and down. Here I am heading to the top. All of my colleagues, they had gone ahead of me. They were gone. They were off to the 50-foot tower. I'm the only person still stuck at the 25-foot tower. Now, there's a sergeant at the top of the wall. And when I get up there, I say to him, I think I've had enough of this. I think I'm not going to do repelling today. I'm going to go back down. He said, oh, yeah, you're going back down, and you're repelling down. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, what? Okay, and so... I forgot everything that they taught me on the ground. You get all this briefing on the ground, how the equipment works. I didn't remember it at all. I'm at the top of the wall trying to hold up all of my weight with this rope. I said, well, I can't hold all of this weight. It's too heavy. You're not supposed to hold all of your weight. Let go of the rope. If I let go of the rope, I'm going to die. No, you're not going to die. There's a belay master right down here, and he's waiting. If you anything happens to you, he's going to pull the rope and freeze you in midair. Okay, I tried it. I successfully repelled down the tower. Now, I was still scared of it. I was still frightened. So I made myself go back up that tower a couple more times till I got accustomed to it. Then I went to the 50-foot tower and was able to repel down that and then later on for the mountains later in the afternoon. So I say that what I learned in that incident is how important it is to have someone at the top of the wall in your life to remind you what you've learned, that you really can do what you think you can't do, and in fact, they won't let you quit on yourself. That was the role of the sergeant. He would not let me quit on myself. And it's great to have a belay master down there as well because that's the safety. If anything does go wrong, yank the rope. I'll be suspended in midair. Fortunately, I didn't need that service as I was learning repelling. And it was also good to have some of my colleagues there. I saw them go through it. None of them died. They all survived. They did well. And just seeing the role modeling was useful as well. So you might think about that for doing hard things. The second hard thing I really did in the military, actually there are a lot of hard things. I'm only telling you about two. 
So one I want to share is the time I went out for what's called the Expert Field Medical Badge. This is a very difficult badge to obtain. And there's also a combat version of it so that if you're in combat and you have to operate as an expert field medic, then you get the badge with the combat insignia attached to it. So I'm at the 1st Infantry Division. I'm the division psychologist. And I'm thinking, what can I do that's going to show some credibility? The infantrymen, they respected the expert infantryman's badge. And they also understood the EFMB, the Expert Field Medical Badge. Many of them had been in Vietnam and they knew those medics had saved their lives. And so they had a lot of respect for it. So this challenge is extremely difficult. It starts with a written test of all kinds of medical knowledge and so on. 300 people went out for it at the beginning. That number got whittled down to about 150. We went on the 12 mile force road march where full pack and you had to finish the road march in three hours, extremely difficult to do, 80 pounds on my back and I was skinnier then. <laughs> so doing that was hard enough. That knocked out most of, about half of the rest of the people. The remaining group, we went to the week-long field problem, as it was called. And you're out there and you're at different medical stations having to do different tasks. You have to start IVs on people in combat conditions. You have to protect patients under gas attacks. You have to triage patients, decide who you can treat and return to duty and who's probably gonna die. And you're not gonna waste time treating them because you've gotta deal with those who can return back to work. You're purifying water. You're doing all kinds of military tasks, loading helicopters with injured patients, so on and so forth. You're doing maneuvers at night land recon, all kinds of things. And so at the end, 30 people passed this test. And mind you, I mentioned 300 started. And of the 30 who passed, there were three women who made it. And I was one of those women. So when I went into the infantry units after that with the EFMB proudly displayed on my chest, I had instant credibility. Oh, she doesn't look too tough. But we know it's tough to do that. She got that. We'll pay a little bit of attention, even though we don't like psychologists. And they had bad names for us. I won't mention them. However, that was an important thing. to If you're going to be in an environment, do something that aligns you with that environment so that they know on some level you're one of them. You can relate to challenges that they relate to and that are important to them. So that was also an aspect of that. And I will say this too. The military is the place where I got a vision for my future life. I didn't know it at the time. I had always considered being a clinical psychologist. I had considered being in private practice. Never thought about corporate consulting. However, in the Army, we had to do consultations with commanders. We had to speak to leaders, and we had to share with them ways to move forward to lead more effectively with their units. And I thought, well, this could be really interesting, the business application of psychology. So it was in the military that I first had that thought. And then the very best thing I got out of the military was my wonderful husband 
and he and I just celebrated 36 years together, and we met when we were both active duty and stationed at West Point. Later, after I got married, I decided to get out of the military so that my husband and I could be together. And so the next stop for me was Wiesbaden, Germany. And in Wiesbaden, where we lived, there were a number of military wives, spouses of other officers who were there, very talented women, and they had decided, well, there's nothing to do over here, so we're just going to sit around and that's going to be the end. And I said, well, surely there's something to do over here. And I decided to explore and find out what it could be. So I contacted the 97th General Hospital, which was in Frankfurt in Germany, and that was about an hour away by train. And so I found out that a colleague who I had known at Walter Reed was the clinic director of the psych department. I said, fabulous, networking strikes again. Another opportunity because he knew me, he knew the nature of my work, he knew that I had been in the army so I understood the military. And so I said to him, I know you don't have any positions right now. What I'd like to do is come up on the train once a week and volunteer. And I figured if I volunteered in his clinic, I'd keep my skills up and I'd also be adding value and service to the community. He said, great. What was also interesting is that he was working with children in the exceptional family member department, and that was unusual and unique for me. I was an adult psychologist. However, because I was there volunteering every week, I learned new skills from him. He taught me how to assess children with developmental disabilities and delays, how to work with them, and so on. This went on for a while, then all of a sudden, he got orders to go elsewhere. This was unexpected. And they did not have another active duty military person to backfill him. And because I was there on site, they said, well, we could temporarily convert this position to a civilian role. And would you be interested in it if we do? I said, sure, that would be wonderful. So when he left, I was now full time, the chief psychologist of the exceptional family member department. And I also had clinics in Giessen and Hanau, two other communities there where I had other psychologists, uh, colleagues in place, and who I was the supervisor for. So that was a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful example of what it means to create your own opportunity. Sometimes it's not obvious. It doesn't already exist. You have to make it happen. And it's great to know people along the way. After my time in Germany, I finally got to go to a number of different communities and to realize my dream job, what I had always wanted to do since sixth grade, which was to be in private practice as a psychologist. And so I did do that for a number of years and like I said, in a number of different places. And it was fabulous, I loved it. I loved working with my clients. I loved having my own business, being in private practice until third party insurance got to be a little bit crazy. And when that happened, that's when I started looking for maybe some other way to do the work that I really loved and really enjoyed. After my private practice time in a number of cities, my husband and I moved to Colorado Springs. And in Colorado Springs, I started another private practice since that was my pattern and that's what I enjoyed doing. At the same time, I contacted some colleagues. So again, this was networking. 
These colleagues had been psychologists at the Air Force Academy when I was a psychologist at West Point. And the service academies, we got together and we met and got to work together a little bit. So I knew them and contacted them. They both were working at the Center for Creative Leadership in different roles and capacities. And they said, you know, you really ought to come down here and check it out. We think that you would really like it. And when I heard about it, I said, you know what? This could be the next piece to the vision I had in the Army of the business application of psychology. So I did go down and check it out, and I ended up being on the faculty of the Center for Creative Leadership. And I also learned their coaching methodology and was on the coaching staff at the same time and managed the coaching staff for a while and was a senior faculty person too. It was there at the Center for Creative Leadership, which is a training organization in leadership, where I learned about corporate executives, what their issues were, the challenges they were running into, and all of those concerns that's where I learned about it and how to work with those executives. And then I said, well, this is interesting. I kind of like this. This is kind of enjoyable. It was real hard to learn initially because I came from more of an academic, professorial type of a background, and training is the opposite of that. However, one day, we had a client in-house that really needed what I would call a consulting solution. However, the solution that we were offering to them was a training solution. And they were frustrated and it was challenging all morning. And I said, you know, I really think I could help them. I'd like to facilitate a different kind of conversation in the afternoon. And my colleague said, well, you go for it because I'm not doing it. So the afternoon came. I facilitated the conversation. It went really, really well. The client was really happy. They got back on track. And then we went back to the training piece, which now made more sense to them and which they could integrate. And my colleague said, well, you know, you are really good at that. And that's more consulting. That's a great thing. You might really like that. And I said, oh, maybe so. And that was the beginning of part two of the vision for my next role in consulting. Armed with this vision about consulting, I decided in 1995 to start my own company, which was Trans Leadership Incorporated. That's after working for about five years full-time at the Center for Creative Leadership. I went on the on-call faculty and did that instead of working down there full-time. Trans Leadership stands for Leadership Transformations, and it's based on a Bible verse, Romans 12, 2, which talks about be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And I saw myself in a position and role where I was working with my clients to renew their minds, to transform, to think differently. And a lot of times it's hard to act differently if you don't begin to also think a little bit in a different way. And so that's what the company really is all about. And over the years of being in trans leadership, I have worked in all sectors. I've worked with corporate executives, corporate clients, large global businesses mostly. I've also worked in the nonprofit sector, usually major foundations and also faith-based organizations. I've worked with military all military branches except for the Marines, although sometimes the Marines would be included in some of the work that I did with other organizations. And then I've also worked with the U.S. government, 
all different government agencies as well. So that's a lot of experience that I bring to my clients today. What I see, what I learn across all of those sectors and how they can inform each other and how the different sectors can also learn from one another along the way. So I really wanted to start a company where I could run it by the Christian values that are important to me and the values that I hold deeply and dearly. And so I have had the opportunity to do that. And during the pandemic, I also decided to create specific services for Christian executives who are in secular companies. They're non-Christian companies, yet they wanna bring all of who they are to work to better the company and also the individuals who work in the company. It's been a joy to actually add that to the mix of what I'm doing. I still work with other values-based clients, no matter what religious persuasion they may come from, or they may not be religious at all, and that's also fine too. So it's been a journey. It's been delightful to be here in trans leadership. And at this point, I consider myself in the wisdom years, which means I can give back in a lot of ways to younger executives who are coming along. When I first started out my career in corporate, most of my clients were older than me. And now I am older than most of my clients and I've seen a lot and I can share a lot of what I've seen over the years. More than 30 years ago, when I first started working with corporate clients, here's what the landscape looked like. The classes that I facilitated at the Center for Creative Leadership were predominantly male and predominantly white male. So if the class had about 24 or 26 people, there would usually be only two women, maximum four women, and most of those people would be white, not people of color. That was the landscape at the time. In addition, when I was hired by the Center for Creative Leadership, I was the first person of color to be hired as a faculty member in the Colorado office. Now, there were more diverse people on some of the other campuses, headquarters campus in Greensboro. However, in Colorado, I was the first one. There was also a skittishness around having two women to facilitate a class at the same time. Two men could facilitate, or a man and a woman. And I was the first woman to be paired with another woman colleague to facilitate these leadership classes across the entire worldwide enterprise of the Center for Creative Leadership. It had not been done before. And we felt like we could do it. And we felt we could do it well. And in fact, we did do it well. And our class was really shocked and amazed that it had never been done before. And they were delighted to know that they were the first class and said, let this not be the last. And indeed, it wasn't. After that, it started a trend. And there was a lot more flexibility in terms of what we were able to do in the future. Also, back in those early days at the Center for Creative Leadership, occasionally when there would be a person of color in the room, it was unusual 
for that person because they might be the only one. Probably were. There was one man I remember in particular who was from the West Coast. He was used to a much more diverse environment. He was a black man. And they were staying, the whole class was staying at the Broadmoor, which is our local five-star hotel, beautiful hotel, very old world in its style and its approach. I happen to love the ambiance there. However, it's a little bit stuffy, a little bit hoity-toity in a sense. And he said the only black people he saw the week he was there in Colorado were the people, he said, carrying trays in the hotel. And this was very disturbing to him. And it made a difference that he saw me there in the classroom. And he says, you just don't know how much it meant to me to come in every day and know that you were the lead facilitator in here. And he said, and that was just amazing. And he couldn't believe that he was the only person of color in class. And again, it goes back to how important it is for people to see people like themselves in certain environments to encourage them about the pathway forward and what's even possible. I'm happy to report that it's different today and that these classes are a lot more diverse. At least half of the people in class will be women now, as opposed to only two to four. And you'll have people from all over the globe, which they always were, people from all over the world, all over the globe, all different racial and ethnic backgrounds as well. So we've come a long way in comparison to how it was at that time. And I would say, and I see this in my business trans leadership, that companies are a lot more interested today in issues pertaining to diversity and creating diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they now understand that it's beyond just recruiting those who are different, having different people in place, you also have to figure out how to best utilize the talent, the experience, and the expertise that those people bring rather than trying to conform them to the environment around them. Another observation that I have made recently about business is this. It's a lot more mobile than it used to be. So we have situations now where people are changing jobs more frequently, they are moving more often, including moving from company to company. This means that the war for talent is even more intense than it used to be because people are not staying for 30 years. The contracts between employees and the employer has drastically changed to the point where most companies aren't even offering options like pensions and so on in the same way they used to because people may not be there long enough to collect them in any case. So with all of this mobility, talent becomes a more important issue and technology also becomes important because when you've got people all over the globe and you've got to still communicate, having the technology solutions for the meetings that you have is critical and it's very important. It means you don't always have to fly there in order to have a robust relationship. It doesn't mean you never fly to the other locations. However, you can cut down on some of the flying time because of technology. With the increased mobility, another aspect is that globalization is really a factor. We're in a small world now 
and you can be halfway across the globe very easily. And many people are being posted from one coast to the next, one half of the world and hemisphere to the next, and that's just every day. So in this mobile environment, that's another way to bring in diversity. You're bringing in diversity of different countries, cultures, ethnic groups, by crossing people all across in terms of their assignments. This is also a time when the big companies that have big, powerful names can't just rely anymore on their big names to retain people. Somebody might punch a ticket with you if you're not a great place to work because they want to be able to say, oh yeah, we were at ABC Company or XYZ at some point in time in my career. However, they're not going to stay because maybe it's not as favorable or as great as everyone thinks it is. So again, you have to pay attention in your organization for what the variables are for creating a climate of success. Again, the big name alone is not going to save you. So what are some of those issues that I'm seeing now that I think are important in today's world? For one thing, creating a culture of coaching a culture of development is huge. Organizations that are successful, they're building out how to resource their people in a more profound way. Also related to that is succession planning. Gone are the days when you had Johnny Jones and he was earmarked for the CEO role. Johnny Jones might be gone by the time the CEO role opens up. So you have to think about bench strength in a much broader way. You have to think about how can I develop all of my people to do the best that they can do? How can I think about each person, not just for a job, maybe for multiple jobs, multiple possibilities that exist today, and even for some possibilities that haven't even been created yet? Because of the movement and the mobility, this is important. So I think that succession planning, thinking about this, is what organizations really need to focus on. And then, of course, anytime you're talking about jobs and people moving, there's the issue of executive recruitment. It's really important to think about executive selection, bringing the right persons at the right time, at the right point in history for your company to achieve whatever it is that you need to achieve. Companies need a lot of help with that. They're often changing executives more than they used to in the past. Executive selection is not easy. So that's a place of intervention as well. And in addition to executive recruitment, there's also executive development and preparing your executives as they're coming in to really hit the ground running. That's very, very important. In addition, that executive has got to develop his or her executive team. That's huge. That's important as well. And throughout your organization, you have high-performance teams that also need development. So that's 50 years. 50 years of of observations, personal experiences in the taxpaying workforce. There, there you have it. So as I conclude today's segment, I just want to share a couple of leadership ahas and takeaways. Number one is 
the importance of learning new skills and abilities. And I already shared with you that in my case, I had to learn how to operate the old-fashioned cash register, and now I'm on to high-tech technology and computers and things that did not exist when I first entered the workforce. I had to learn how to work with adults and then learn how to work with children. And you too will have to learn new skills every day and in every decade of your work life. Next, I think it's important to remember to create your own opportunities. There are opportunities all around us. We just have to have the eyes to see them. Remember to access your networks. You've met lots of people over the years who are in a position to show you what your next step might be. And also remember as you're accessing your network, get a vision for what the future might look like. You may have an experience that may not materialize today. However, it could materialize tomorrow in your life. So be looking forward at that vision and everything you've learned, all of your experiences from the past, you're taking those with you to create not only just now, also the future. And lastly, whatever you have learned along the way, just as I'm doing right now, Remember to share your wisdom years with others. There's always someone coming behind you that may not have walked the path that you're walking and you can share with them. So I hope you've enjoyed this personal retrospective of my 50 years in the workplace. And here's to you and the next 50 years. Hi, it's Dr. Karen here. Did you know? that you can mine the lessons from your own life and work experiences to inspire your teams and your people. So in my book, Lead Yourself First, The Senior Leader's Guide to Engaging Your People for Greater Performance and Impact, I share snippets of my life experiences from childhood all the way up to adulthood. I also share what I learned from these experiences, how that learning informs how I lead today, and I share some examples of how I facilitate my client success with these same principles. So I invite you also to apply the same methodology to your life with reflection questions at the end of each chapter. So when you lead yourself first, you then have a foundation for leading others. In chapter two, which is called Run Your Own Race, I share some stories from my days as an active duty army officer. When my approach to running the two miles for the physical training test and also my approach for the 12 mile forced road march had to be different from what other people did. So what I would say is dare to be different Find your own success formula. Sometimes what works for you is different from what works for others. So remember to run your own race and remember to get your own copy of Lead Yourself First and you'll find resources for how to run your own race.
You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.